Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. What I was feeling was like my life had been a lie. I realized that my relationship with men was very, very bad. I also felt like a total fraud when it came to my profession. It didn't feel like I was really making a difference, that there was any point in me doing what I was doing. And I treated my body like shit. I smoked, I drank, I ate bad food. I was constantly looking at myself in the mirror and being cruel. And there were a couple of days in and amongst all of this where like I had really, I had suicidal thoughts for the first time in my life. I just took this look at it and I was like, I hate it all. And I was like, fuck it. (laughs) I'm going to start entirely again. This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Ella Cook. She is a location-independent entrepreneur born and raised in Zambia and currently based in Canggu, Bali, Indonesia. She is the founder, owner, and chief witch at Made of Magic, a digital marketing agency that specializes in lead generation and sales for transformational retreats. Ella's mission is to help business owners who run unique, impactful retreats to amplify their reach and fill their events through creative, human-centered marketing. Ella has bootstrapped her business and in less than three years has grown revenue to over $20,000 a month. She can run her business completely remotely and has traveled to over 40 countries. She is also the founder and facilitator of The Alchemy of She, where Ella guides women towards a more powerful version of themselves rooted in self-worth and the confidence to demand and create a life on their terms. This includes tapping into their feminine energy and power, discovering their magic, and embracing their unique gifts through weekly women's circles, retreats, and online programs. Inspired by her own personal growth journey, Ella is passionate about bringing people together to provide healing spaces for personal transformation. Ella, welcome to the show. Hello. (laughs) So good to have you here. We should just set the scene. You and I are doing this interview in Canggu, Bali. Mm -hmm. 
I have been here for about a month hanging out. It is my technically my second time in Bali, but really my first time in Chenggu and my first sort of longer term stay in Bali. And it has been an absolute blast this month. But I know that you've been here a lot longer than I have and you have <laughs> chosen to spend a lot more time here. You could be anywhere. You're location independent. You've traveled all over the world. Let's just start off with asking, why do you choose to be based in Bali? What do you love about it? I mean, it's I literally had like two years ago, my life that I live now on my vision board. It was like I wanted to live somewhere where I live near the ocean. I could surf as regularly as I wanted without having to drive an hour and a half to the nearest break. I wanted access to healthy food. I actually wanted a bicycle to travel around on. I had this like little picture of this chick with like, you know, wearing her surf gear, like driving down, like riding down on a bike to the beach. I ride a scooter, so it's not far off. Um, and I wanted to live somewhere that was like a small little island in the, in the ocean. And I think the reason that I've stayed, like all those things are great and you can get them so many places. But I think the reason I've stayed is because of the people. There, you know, there are other people that are attracted to the same things that I am are all here. I wouldn't, like if my tribe picked up and moved to like Sri Lanka, guess where I'd be going? Because <laughs> it's, you know, the place is great, but without the community of people here, I, yeah, that's the main reason I'm here. Yeah. And you and I know a number of people in common here mm-hmm, as well, mm-hmm. including a number of my podcast guests, yeah. Danielle Thompson and yeah. Arthur Worsley and Aaron Young. And that's all part of your crew as yeah, well. So yeah, they are. it's been super, super fun to be here and hanging out with such an amazing group of human beings and impressive entrepreneurs all at the same time. I mean, it's really been quite fun. Let me ask you about surfing. What does that mean to you? And how long have you been surfing? You know, what do you love about it? What does it feel like to you when you are surfing? Mm. Man, I've had a love-hate relationship with surfing. (laughs) It was one of those things. I grew up in a landlocked country in Zambia and uh, surfing was, it just looked really cool and it was in some movies. And then when I moved to the UK, I watched Blue Crush. I don't know if you remember that movie about like the Hawaiian surf chicks. And uh, I watched that and I was like, okay, that's going to be my life. And I was like directionless when I was a teen. So I was like, I'm going to move to Australia and learn to surf. So I did move to Australia and I did learn to surf, but like it was just a great representation of everything else in my life. And I've actually used surfing as a metaphor for my life to date. It's like I never really committed to getting good enough that I could enjoy it. And so it was like this battle, like, will I go out? I don't really want to because I'm probably going to get smashed. But this identity of like being a surfer and liking to surf was something that I strived so hard for that, yeah, I just didn't really feel like I was part of the surfing community but then not really part of it and I never really got very good and I when I was going out on my own I was like not paddling for the right waves I was kind of like sitting on the edge like letting everybody else get waves and yeah just I I was like when I got waves I was the happiest person in the world and when I didn't I would literally come back to shore with like my tail between my legs be really pissed off and now I've definitely gotten a lot better just by observing, like, what do I love about surfing? Why do I want to go surfing? What makes me happy is like, actually, up until recently, is not surfing on my own. It's going surfing with my friends, like Aaron and I surf together a lot. And that's what I love about it, you know, getting waves, but it's about being out in the water with people. And I think recently, I've started to understand that if I take a bit more of a strategic approach to my learning, 
then like rather than just this sort of haphazard, oh, hopefully I get better. Um, if I'm a bit more technically focused, I'll just have more fun because I'll get more waves. It, surfing's been an interesting, like my enjoyment and my relationship with it has changed so much through my life because I've technically been surfing for like six years. You wouldn't fucking know it <laughs> if you saw me in the water. And some days I'm like insanely good. And some days I'm like fully like there's someone drowning. Go and get like go and save her like the Coast Guard, please. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's really interesting. But I think I love being out in the ocean. I love feeling in tune with the water. I love being out there with my friends. I was in Lombok this last week and just being out in the water with some friends and sort of catching their eye and, you know, watching the sunset and it's just a really simple existence. And I like that it just, I'm so present. I'm not really, you can't be thinking about anything other than watching the, you know, the waves roll in and you're being stoked for your mates when they catch waves and just like, you know, it's just, I'm super present. I think there's something I've read a lot recently about surfing actually. And there's like, a, I think the ions on between the water and the air are like negatively charged and uh, it does something to us. It makes us just happier. So I'm like, maybe that's why I like it so much. <laughs> that's amazing. I have never been to Lombok. I would mm. love to hear how your trip there was. And actually, maybe even just contextualize for people that are not familiar with this mm -hmm. part of the world or what Lombok is or where it is. Maybe just you could share that first. And then we'd love to hear how your trip was there and your experiences and your reflections coming back. Yeah, for sure. So I have been in Bali for a year and a half and I have never been to any other island, which is just indicative of like where I've been at for the last year. And uh, you know, Aaron and Arthur and friends and I arranged trips away with each other. We're trying to do it more often. We usually go to Uluwatu, which is still on Bali. And we were talking about going to Lombok, um, which is just an island to the east. And I think it might even be bigger than Bali. Maybe not. I, I don't actually know, but it's very different and it's way less populated than Bali. Very dry as well, but very rural still and is, is really beautiful. And so uh, we were planning to go away and actually I'm going again next weekend with Aaron and Arthur. <laughs> I'm like, I've got the bug now for like little island life. But I got an opportunity to go. A friend of um, mine has a, uh, his uncle has a place on the water there. And I was like, fuck it. It was like super last minute. He was like, I'm leaving for two weeks. I was like, no. He was like, come with me. I don't think he actually, it, like it was like a serious invite, but I just like jumped on it. So I was like, yup, I'm there. Cause I was just so desperate to get out of Chengdu. It's like, I just feel like I've been sort of rooted here. And when I got there, it was like, fuck all there. Like the drive from the airport to, or like from the main town to where we were staying was just like barren road. And there was like, like three shops in the place that we're staying and his uncles had this place for like 10 years. I think that power was off the whole time. But it was right on the water and you're waking up there in this like beautiful little beach shack that's like so simple. You know, it's just like chunky wood uh, tiles. There's no doors on the front of it. It's just like rolling mats to like keep the sun out. They have a Rottweiler and most of the garden is taken up by like surfboards and stand-up paddleboard. And he runs this little Airbnb or like, what do you call it? Like a guest house thing there. And that's his life. And so we just got to house sit for 10 days or whatever. And I was there for like five and life has never been more simple. And I was so fucking happy. We both run location independent businesses. So we did a lot of kind of collaboration and share, skill sharing. And we, we spent days working in each other's businesses and surfing and that's kind of all I need to be happy. It turns out <laughs> like I've, I've, 
become, you know, living, I lived in, in the corporate world and sort of like the Western world, I call it the matrix for so long that I got really conditioned and programmed to what that pace of life felt like. So moving to Bali, I was like, holy shit, I could never go back to that because it's so intense. But then living in Chengdu, what would be most like people's idea of like relaxed paradise, like you build up a pace here too, you know, like I zip around on my scooter, like I'm fucking trying to win a race. Like it's like crazy. And then the dogs are going and the tourists and there's like people beeping and it does like start to stress you out after a while. And I, cause I've been here for so long, I didn't realize how wound up I'd started to get, you know, the tourists are like, they're pumping down at Finn's beach club and there's like fucking fireworks and shit. And so when I got to Lombok and when the lights went out at night, I could see the stars down to like ocean level, right? Because there's like no lights. I was like, whoa, like this is peaceful. So now I've got a taste of what that feels like. I got back and I was like, wait, when am I going again? And my friend and I are like, we're going to get a boat. We're going to sail around Indonesia and we're never coming back. That's amazing. Living on the beach in Changu, Bali is far too hectic. It's too crazy. It's, it's too, too crazy. Take me to the freaking remote <laughs> island. Yeah, I'm living castaway. That's so awesome. <laughs> You mentioned that surfing is sort of a metaphor for your life and the way that a lot of stuff has gone. I would love to hear a little bit about your journey and just starting maybe way back in terms of growing up in Zambia. So I've now probably been to about 10 countries in Africa, but I've never been to Zambia. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear just sort of your experience growing up there. And then, you know, ultimately when you left and stuff, what was sort of your kind of path that you were intending to pursue as you came into adulthood and so forth? Interesting. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I was raised in Zambia. The childhood there was amazing. You know, I don't think many people get to have the life that I did growing up. It was incredible. And my parents divorced quite early. So my dad lived in Botswana and my mom was in Zambia. So I spent my time between the two countries. So I got to experience two very different sides of, of Africa. You know, Botswana is a very wealthy, you know, country that doesn't have a lot of its population in poverty and Zambia is the opposite. So that was really interesting. And also, you know, a lot of kids that I know, a lot of people that I know went to school and school was something that you didn't want to do when you were a kid. And for me and my community growing up, school was everything. You know, like we were so privileged and so lucky to have an education and we knew it because the kids down the street had nothing. And so that was really different and kind of gave me uh, a really solid foundation for just gratitude for what I have, what I had. And I actually became really passionate about the environment when I was young. And I thought I was going to be a game ranger. <laughs> and then I was going to be a ballerina. <laughs> I remember going through a few phases at school. But, I, you know, we, we were very connected with nature growing up. We used to go to bush camp really regularly. I'm like crazy skilled in the jungle. It's like fucking weird. Like I can make rope out of like trees and shit uh, and like <laughs> killed a guinea fowl with my bare hands like it's <laughs> just like shit that I forget is not normal for people we did growing up That's and like amazing. crazy shit like they drop us in the bush and like we had to navigate our way home like in in the dark like with no like adult supervision like just crazy shit which was honestly awesome and I'm I loved it like we used to do crazy obstacle courses and stuff and school was just fun like normal trappings of childhood you know and standardized education it was all a bit fucked in that regard but um you know we had like a british curriculum i learned about like the glaciers and like 
arable farming in like the UK when I was like living in Africa, which made no sense, (laughs) but it was amazing. So yeah, childhood was great, but my mom is British and I don't think ever really had any intention of living there forever. When she had kids, she knew that she living in a country like that is a bubble and she wanted to get us out to go and experience the rest of the world. And so we left when I was 16 and uh, we had done like a year or two in the UK when I was younger, when her and my dad got divorced. So that was where we decided to go to was the UK. My mom's from London. And that was, that was fucked, that transition. Because I was 16 and I'd been raised in like, literally like a fantasy world where it was almost like what I imagine it's like for the people that raise children in Bali was like what it was like for my mom. Because it's just like this, so few rules, expat life is not normal, you know, my mom had help in Zambia. Like she didn't do any cleaning or like, you know, had someone to nanny the kids when she was younger. And then we moved to the UK and and so much space, so much space. And then we moved to the UK and we were living in a box and it fucking rained all the time. And every, everyone was miserable. It's like, why is everyone so mad at life? Like I couldn't get my head around the UK. And also I'd gone from living behind a 10 foot wall where my mom knew my every movement and everyone's mums knew everyone's movement. You were either at home, at school or at your friend's house. That was the only places that you could be. Um, and so when we moved to the UK, I had zero restrictions. Like I had every restriction. My mom like tried to run the house as best she could in terms of cre- like creating rules for me. But she was like, you have to be home at 10 o'clock. And I was like, I actually don't. Like, I, like physically, you can't keep me here. <laughs> So needless to say, I went off the rails pretty quickly and I actually left home at 17 and my mom, you know, made the blessed, the choice of sending me to, you know, a private all girls school when we moved to the UK, which was just full of people that I couldn't relate to. They had more money than sense and they were all about elitism and, you know, very cliquey and I was just this weirdo odd one out. Uh, so I didn't really fit in there. I didn't, I didn't feel like I fitted in anywhere. And that's kind of the beginning of, of, of that journey of just not really feeling like I belonged anywhere. So I just rebelled against everything I possibly could. And I did university in the UK. I wanted to do theatre studies. I think I wanted to run away and join the circus. That was like what I wanted to do. And luckily my mom talked some sense into me <laughs> and she was like, no, don't do that. Um, and so I ended up studying advertising, which I actually loved. And I chose, you know, I did what most good university students did. I got really high and took a lot of LSD and just came up with weird and wonderful concepts. <laughs> and I did. I was honestly, I, was, I actually really, <laughs> I loved university. I had a really fucking good time. <laughs> I actually got a first, I was top of my class. I produced some really great material because, I mean, I didn't think I was very comfortable in the world that I was being given an option to live in. I didn't like it. So I was looking for anything that I could do that was fun and different outside of that and very unhealthy. But at the time it was great. But I wanted to leave the UK as quickly as I could. So I literally graduated in June and then I was out of there in October. I was like, watch Blue Crush. And I was like, I'm moving to Australia. So so that's what I did. And I think kind of narrowly escaped a pretty horrendous life in the UK as well. Like I'd fallen in with a bad crowd and I found myself in an abusive relationship when I was, you know, 17 to 18. And I really did. I think I I nearly let it consume me, but I just didn't want to let my mom down. So I was like, fuck, I better leave and try and do something with, with life. But I think I've always been, and, you know, really just 
discontent and a bit disillusioned by, you know, the path ahead. Everyone's like, you know, go to university, get a good degree, get a good job, meet a man, have a baby. And I was like, oh, <laughs> fine, I'll do it. But I don't want to. <laughs> um, so I was like, kind of like, like trying to do my own thing, but like kind of had my eye on this thing that I was supposed to do. So I kind of didn't stray too far from the cart, I think, just in case like my way was the wrong way. And and then I was going to just go to Australia for a year and then go backpacking around the world. And then eight years later, I was <laughs> still in Australia, had a fiance and have been in corporate life for eight years. And So well, yeah. let's go there, right? You watched Blue Cross. You wanted to be a surfer. You wanted to move to Australia. You did it in part to get away from certain things and in part to move towards certain things. And then what happened when you got there and what was that change in plan that kept you there for eight years? So when I arrived, I wanted to get a job in like marketing or something because I had a degree in that. No one would fucking hire me because I was a backpacker. I was like 21 and I needed sponsorship on a visa to stay. And they were like, we can just hire Australian people. (laughs) You are not going to get a job here. And I was like, fuck, well, I need to earn money. So I actually ended up getting a job in sales uh, for charity. So I did fundraising and that was easy for me. I was like, oh, you want me to raise money for kids back home? Yeah, fuck, I can do that in a heartbeat. And like, I like to talk and I can be pretty persuasive. And I'm a very passionate person, so I kicked ass, like did really well. Um, And within six months, I was sponsored and promoted to stay. So, And I was running the Brisbane office. And I met my now ex-fiancé within two weeks of being in Australia. And he'd actually been there for two weeks as well. And I had not intended to meet anyone. And I was so up for the single life in Australia. And then I met this guy. (laughs) And we fell in love so quickly. We moved in together after knowing each other for four days. And so that was pretty intense. So that coupled with being offered, you know, sponsorship to stay, I think my intentions had been for freedom and exploration. But everything that I was doing was creating you know, roots and stability, which was, I seemed to be allergic to for most of my life. So there was a really intense, like disparity between what I wanted and what I was creating in, in my life, if that makes sense. Why was that disparity there? What was, do you think, looking back on it, what was causing you to sort of make those choices when they didn't seem consistent with what you thought you wanted to do? It's a really good question. And I think like at the core of it, uh, based on the reflection that I've done on my life, I don't think I really knew what I wanted. And so my, I call it like my drumbeat wasn't very loud. And so it was very easy for me to be pulled in whatever fucking direction, whatever anyone was offering me opportunity wise. I was like, oh, sure. Well, I don't really have a better plan. And I don't think I really had a very intentional approach to life. I genuinely was like, look, if you make it to 25, awesome. (laughs) I was fucking reckless and a party animal and I was very irresponsible and I didn't have much regard for myself, right? Like a lot of that was just rooted in a really low 
self-worth. Like I clearly didn't value my life and my experience because I wasn't designing it intentionally. I was just kind of like hoping (laughs) that I had some fun along the way, you know, and just sort of said yes to whatever opportunities. And that looked like yes to a relationship when maybe that wasn't the right thing for me at the time. Yes to a job that, you know, wasn't the right job for me, but, you know, kept me in the country, which was better than the zero plan I had to go to fucking India or whatever. So, yeah, I think ultimately it was just the lack of knowing what I wanted in a a specific direction for myself. And what eventually changed that for you? Fear. A genuine fear that I, I think, oh, I got to 25. I made it. And I was like, I literally remember going, fuck, you're 25. Like, good job. But also, what are you doing with your life? (laughs) I was like smoking, drinking, partying. My job was like stressful. I was like in bed with like just like chronic anxiety and was just a mess. I was unfaithful to my partner. Like we didn't have a good relationship. Like honestly, my life was a mess. And I got there and I was like, shit, okay, well, I'm here now and it doesn't look like I'm going anywhere, so maybe I should do something about it. And I made some health changes and I decided to quit smoking. I actually quit my job and got a new one, which was really hard to do, but I did it and that moved me out of uh, sales and into marketing and that began my marketing career. I got a stable job that was like normal nine to five, like stopped binge drinking, you know, just like I think most people go through this transition at 25 of just like, oh, I need to behave like an adult now. So I I did that and my relationship was saved and, you know, I I managed to to get that on track and, you know, started to be a little bit more intentional with life and then got to 29 after deciding to live a location-independent life. My ex and I opened an electric bike store. We did that for six months and then we decided we didn't want to be tied to a location and I really wanted... I'd read the four hour work week and I was like, I'm gonna have that. (laughs) Tim's got it right. I need to work from my fucking laptop and, you know, do this surfing thing right. And like, just this white picket fence thing, like it's not vibing for me. Like someone told me this would be great. And it, it's feeling shit. And my friends that have, that are like three years ahead of me are fucking miserable. So like the, the pitch is, the pitch wasn't good. You know, I was like, I was like, I don't think this is good. It's not working for them. And I'm really weird. They're like a bit weird. I'm really weird. So like, why is that going to work for me? So I think ultimately I, I remember the day I chose to leave my fiance, actually, I had this image literally flashed in my mind of me being like a 90-year-old woman. And she was like, oh, you fucked it up. And it was like this really strong download. And I was like, oh, okay, shit. Do you only have one shot at this? And you could get to the end and be like, oh, whoops, should have done it my way. Or you can feel this terrifying fear, this gut-wrenching pain in your stomach of the unknown if you reject everything that you've worked to build and and try and and try and do it your way because like you really do have one shot so i think the fear of like if i keep trying to do this for everyone else then i'm never going to be happy and i don't know what it is that i want but i definitely know what i don't want 
<laughs> wow. I'm super, super interested in this transitionary moment, too, because I feel like a lot of people have these, I mean, a lot of people have multiple transitionary moments, but the major sort of life pivots, right? So for you, when you had that fear and the dream and all that kind of stuff, and you really realized that you needed to take control of your life, what then? I mean, because that seems like a very incredibly daunting prospect, yeah. right? Like you're like, I should do this. I feel now that I think I'm gonna do this. <laughs> but then what's entailed in actually doing it is massively daunting, yeah. right? Yeah. So how did you approach that transition once you had that realization and you summoned that, you know, strength to make a decision? How then did you proceed with the transition? Yeah, so it wasn't easy. And I lost my dad five months ago or something like that. It was, it was just the other day, it feels like. And up until saying goodbye to him, leaving my ex and leaving that life was the hardest thing I'd ever I'd ever had to do. And I consider myself a courageous person and it took every inch of courage for me to leave. I had to cancel my wedding and unsave the dates and crush our family's dreams and my partner's dreams and my dreams of everything that I had I'd worked, I'd pushed and strived so hard for those eight years to just try and feel normal. And, you know, the excessive planning and the constant obsession with doing what everyone else was doing, you know, the getting married, the like, the even the traveling was like, it was just all this illusion of what I thought I was supposed to do. But I had worked and sacrificed so much to do it. So, Ultimately, chucking it all in the fuck it bucket and deciding to like move on and do something entirely different was really hard. So I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, I just decided one day to leave. <laughs> Wasn't that simple at all. But I also know that once I made the decision to commit to myself. And that's really what it was in the moment. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to leave him and quit my job and move to Bali. It was like, I just need to do what's right for me. That was the decision that I made. And actually what was interesting is that the rest kind of just unraveled because I made the choice to just do what felt right for me. And honestly, the path just got shown after that. It was like the courage to make the decision that I had to end this and I had to leave. The rest just happened. And and it was like that day that I was like, I can't do this anymore turned into, well, actually the question was like, I don't think I can do this anymore, turned into, I definitely can't do this anymore, turned into that afternoon, I'm leaving now. It was almost like the escape hatch had been opened and I didn't need any encouragement, you know, to leave. It was like, okay, this is what's happening now. But I also think it's important I'd taken myself to therapy six months before I left because I was really concerned about the way that I was living my life and the stress and anxiety that I felt on a daily basis. And, and I felt really unfulfilled in my relationship. And so when I made the decision to leave, I felt really mentally supported. You know, I didn't feel like it was coming from this erratic, irrational place. And we went to therapy together after, like during that transition. So, and, and I saw, you made sure I had professional help as well because I had been so, reckless and flippant with everything in my life up until that date. And I didn't want to do that. You know, I wanted to transition out of this life into a new one, like as you know, start as you mean to go on, you know, with intentionality and with my best interests at heart. And I still love him so much. I didn't want to hurt him. So the transition was really slow in, you know, 
there were many weeks went by where we met up and we spoke and I hadn't really decided what I was going to do with my business yet. And, and it was actually only when he left the country five weeks afterwards that I was like, okay, it's time to move forward now. I guess we're going to Bali, <laughs> you know? So it was quite slow in that I let myself sit through the emotion. I, I mean, I've never cried, like, again, up until losing my dad. I've never cried like that. Like, it was such loss, you know, and it felt so... There was nothing else I could do other than sit in it and just kind of process it from there. And then it was a case of, right, well, it really hurts, actually, and so now I have to move forward. And I did that by going, all right, I'm going to move to Bali. And then when I moved here... Like we were supposed to be here together, actually. We were, we were going to do nine months of travel and work and then go to Ireland where he's from, get married and have a family. It was like full on white picket fence was what we had planned. But we were going to be here together, but I decided to come out on my own. But, you know, the, after he left, the three months of like packing up our house, winding down my job, selling everything I owned and moving out here was like cocaine fueled and every moment that I could get to not be with myself, I took, you know, to distract myself because I was in so much pain. I was so afraid of what was coming. And when I got to Bali, like, I can tell you what every bar and nightclub here looks like on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, because I did everything I could to distract myself with that as well. So like, needless to say, two months after being here, the whole thing came like crumbling down my life on Instagram that, you know, oh, has moved to Bali and she's left her fiance and she's free and she's happy. And she has this online business, you know, in big inverted commas. Like I was like so hungover. I was missing deliverables. Like my clients were pissed off. I was missing meetings. I was, my housemates were ready to chuck me out. Like the whole thing was a fucking disaster. And in fact, it was even more of a sham than the life I'd been living in Australia. You know, the life that they're trying to live, make like look like my friend's, the one that I was living when I was in Bali was even worse. So yeah, that came crashing down pretty quickly. And how did that crash manifest and take place? And then how did you deal with that? How did you process it? And what came out of the crash? Well, I watched Eat, Pray, Love. So I knew it was coming. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm a redhead and so is Julia. (laughs) So I had an idea <laughs> that, um, and, and it's funny, it's funny, I'm, I joke, but actually that movie was actually really cathartic for me to watch when I was going through what I was going through because it's real. Like, I think a lot of people go through what I went through and it essentially, to cut a long story short with the breakdown, like it essentially looks like going out and partying too much and then going out and partying too hard one night and not sleeping for like three days. And I took prescription medication, which I never do. I was like class A drugs all the way. And, but you should, Bali's not a place to do that. And thank God, cause like might've ended up in a gutter. Like I was that bummed out with my life that I would no care for myself. And I, I'd chosen some poor company again, you know, just people that are a reflection of where you're at in your life. But I was, I was spending time with someone who doesn't have great social skills and was very honest with me about things that he was seeing in me. So, you know, binge drinking some dodgy chemicals and some harsh doses of truth and, you know, no sleep for three days is enough to throw anybody into a headspin. I think one of the things that's really important that you're sharing that I don't think it's shared enough is that a lot of people view 
sort of the digital nomad lifestyle, if you will, or whatever you want to call it. In this case, I guess oftentimes the expat lifestyle, people that move to Bali or whatever, but you're moving to a paradise beach location with perfect weather and beautiful people and all of this kind of stuff. And you're location dependent, you're working and you're living sort of the dream. And what happens is I think is that a lot of people will escape things Mm -hmm. and they'll run away from things and they will think that travel or relocation is going to be either a total cure or even a partial cure (laughs) for what the problems were. But in fact, the problems remain exactly the same. You're just in a different place. Yeah. So it's funny that you say that. So a couple of things like there's a bit of a saying here. It's like Bali will show you what you need to see and it will either chew you up and spit you out and send you home, usually with some sort of motorcycle accident or it'll make you work through your shit and it will heal you beyond belief. And like, that's very woo-woo to say, but it's fucking true. And it's what goes down. And the other thing on that is I remember like I was right in the middle of this full on breakdown and I was on the phone to a friend and he was like, wait a minute. So you quit your job. You left your fiance. You sold all your stuff. You moved to Bali and you're still miserable. He was like, fuck, you forgot to leave Ella behind. (laughs) I was like, Oh, yeah. I think I'm the problem. (laughs) (laughs) But that is such a profound, it's really such a profound realization that I feel like, you know, aspiring nomads as well as current nomads, like, need to understand, right? That, like, there's so much amazingness about travel, but ultimately it's not going to allow you to escape yourself. No, no. And my business and what I do now in terms of my work and my ability to make that a real thing and to execute on that and actually have that be something that is not just, again, something that it looks good on Instagram, but is actually like a real thing. That has come from me doing the work. Like, I think that there are lots of ways to, you know, pretend like you have this life, but it doesn't mean anything unless I feel that sense of fulfillment and and joy and peace inside. And that only comes from doing the work on yourself. And I've fucking done some work this year. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about that and maybe just starting there at the very bottom, Mm -hmm. right? When you were at that feeling just total rock bottom, how did you approach that situation? How did you emerge out of it? And what was your trajectory coming back up you know, leading to where you are now. I'm so happy that we're talking about this because I've shared it with a few people recently and it's so common and no one talks about it. Like really what I was feeling was like my life had been a lie. I realized that my relationship with men was very, very bad. Like it took up like 60% of my time. You know, I had all these emotional wounds from childhood and then from this abusive relationship and all of the things. And I never dealt with it. And it was just this constant perpetual cycle. So there was that. I also felt like a total fraud when it came to my profession. I felt like I half delivered value. I didn't have a plan it didn't feel like I was really making a difference that there was any point in me doing what I was doing. And I treated my body like shit. I smoked, I drank, I ate bad food. I was constantly looking at myself in the mirror and being cruel. So there there wasn't really an area of my life that I felt like I was nailing it. You know, (laughs) I was like kind of everything. I just took this look at it and I was like, I hate it all. And so that naturally led me to a place of, well, maybe I shouldn't be here. You know, if, if, if I'm not really stoked about what I have to offer, I'm kind of just taking up space. And there were a couple of days in and amongst all of this where, like, I had really, I had suicidal thoughts for the first time in my life. And 
you know, I'm, I'm mindful and I'm careful to talk being like, you know, I was suicidal because I know people that are suicidal and I know people that have been suicidal for years and I don't want to compare where I was at, you know, with that. And especially because a lot of what I experienced was chemically induced, you know, from massive dumps of serotonin and dopamine and then no sleep for three days. Like that's enough to throw anybody into some sort of depression. But I'm really grateful for what happened because I got to take this look at my life. I had nothing tethering me to my old life. And I was like, fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to start entirely again. And I, I decided to throw the baby out with the bathwater in that I was like, I'm done with marketing. <laughs> it's cruel. It's like perpetuating greed, capitalism, blah, blah, blah. Like all of it. I was like, fuck this. I was like, I'm done dating. I'm, you know, I'm never, I like, honestly, all of it. I was like, I'm done. And you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to go and join an ashram and like live in silence with like no clothes or like food. For honestly, I was just like, I felt like I needed to go and repent my sins <laughs> or, you know, something I just felt so, I, I didn't want to be a part of any of it. I just wanted to go and remove myself and be like, I'm sorry. I love you. I'm sorry. I love you. That's all I felt. And so my two housemates that I was living with at the time are like my guardian angels. I don't know how they put up with me for the two months prior to that, that they did, but I'm so grateful that they did. And they both contributed to helping me get out of that hole, you know, in their own way. I was sat down at the beach, chain smoking cigarettes, looking at the ocean going, if I strap rocks to my feet, that would stop me from swimming back. You know, like that's where my head was at. And my housemate walked past with his surfboard and I was like sunburnt because I'd been sat in the sun for like six hours or something. And he just sat down with me and, and just helped me, you know, pulled me out of that mental spiral. And I went and visited someone and, and I just started at the, the bottom. I, I went, okay. I don't know what I'm good at or what I like. I don't. I was like, I don't even like surfing. Like, I don't even know what food I like. Everything was like, does the world think I should do? You know, well, and I spent time with someone. They were like, what do you like doing? And I was like, dancing. Like, I like the sunset. <laughs> like, that's literally how basic it was for me. And, you know, I was like, I like uh, laughing and... um I guess like painting, you know, it was just this really basic place that I was at. And I thought, you, you know, the number one value for me during this and, and the, the core thing, I was like, as long as it's truthful, that's all that matters. As long as it feels like it's coming from the right place and it's just truthful. That's the only, you know, marker here. The rest of it can be whatever, Ella, just as long as it feels real and you're not creating a gap between what the world is seeing and like how you're really feeling. So yeah, that's where I started. And I decided to go on a retreat. And I was going to Thailand to get my teeth done. I was getting some veneers because I had a wedding planned and that's what they were for. And I decided that I was going to do it for myself anyways. Like I didn't have fucked up teeth or anything, but I was like, you know, living my life by everyone else's standards. So I wanted perfect teeth. <laughs> They're pretty good, right? <laughs> so I went to Thailand and did the whole teeth thing, which I briefly shared with you before the podcast was terrifying because I was like on my own and got them done. They shaved the teeth down. My whole face was numb. They put on the temporary ones while they made my real ones and then sent me home. And I'm like on my own, like essentially newly divorced. Like my life's a total disaster. I have no idea what I'm doing. I get home and I look like Jim Carrey out of the mask. And I was like, oh, 
fuck. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if shit couldn't get any worse for you, like this is really bad. And I was like calling people from home and they were like, no, like they're fine. I was like, oh my God. So, but then I got my real ones done and they were great and they look good, right? So it's fine. <laughs> so I did the, my teeth for the first half of the thing at the trip away. And then I went to a retreat for the second half. And I went to that retreat my health was not great. My mindset was very bad, but I was really just focused on, I was taking a lot of like personality tests and reading a lot about like philosophy and trying to stay away from like hypey motivational stuff, but just really looking at some of the deeper questions, you know, that people were asking. Uh, Cause like I went to a Tony Robbins seminar and that changed my life, but I was looking at doing things a little bit differently. And I was interested in like, what's my makeup? Uh, I did the Colby test that my house, housemate recommended and that was really insightful. And so I was kind of just like stewing, like what am I going to do? But I wasn't putting any pressure on myself to make a decision. Before my breakdown, I'd hired someone to kind of run the two clients that I had. So money was not really a massive concern. I was really lucky. It wasn't ideal and I was very frivolous with it, but it was fine. So on this retreat, I was like, I wanted to go and train Muay Thai and eat healthy food for a week. That was like the protocol for me. Go and do that. Get yourself in like a good physical and emotional space and, and shit will roll out. And I just got so much more than I bargained for on that retreat. So I went, I did the whole healthy diet thing. And then this center that I went to had this like crazy spiritual curriculum that I, they don't advertise because it's not what people go looking for. But I did like sound healing for the first time. I did, you know, like tantric meditation with this crazy, amazing witch lady. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I don't want to talk about your crystals. <laughs> but I was so open and vulnerable, right? Because I was like, look, my approach to life has been ridiculous and it's not worked for me. So maybe I'll be open, you know, to the other stuff. And like, I had some pretty profound shit happen to me. Like I saw visions of myself during breath work. I booked a private session with this healer and it just went in, like really just went as deep as I could into it. And yeah, I started to feel joy again. I started to feel gratitude. And the biggest shift for me on this retreat, uh, the women that were there that were working there doing various witchy things, they were all had this like confident, beautiful essence about them that just seemed so distant for me. And like I mentioned about the men thing and it had been this, this, I'd worn this masculine mask my whole life to protect myself, you know, from this thread of the world. And it kept me from my softness and from my gentle side and, and it kept me from my own power really. And I saw it in these other women and I started to shed some of those layers and indulge in that a little bit. And it felt so good. I danced with fire on my last night at the retreat center. And it sounds so crazy, but I was like moving my body, you know, in a really fluid way and watching how this fire was moving and felt so free. And I, I played a, an instrument, like a space drum. And I would have been so afraid to sit down with an instrument and be like, I don't know how to play this. But I was just like, fuck it. Like, I'm going to have a good time. This sense of freedom and confidence had started to kind of brew within me. So when I got back from the retreat center, I naturally wanted to start my own retreat center. <laughs> I 
<laughs> and I told my housemates, I was like, guys, I know what my calling is. <laughs> Obviously, it clung to the first thing I could get my hands on. But it did. I, I Then I went to A-Fest. I don't know if you've heard of Mind Valley, but they, they host A-Fest every year. And it was in Bali. And the guys at the retreat had been like, oh, you should check out these guys. If there's another one on, go. And it just so happened to be in Bali. And I was like, yeah, I'll dump five grand on a ticket. No fucking worries. So I did that. <laughs> I went to this festival, this conference, and I went there with nothing. I decided like my resume went shit. I was like, just go and just see if you can make people smile. Like, I don't know what I bring to the table in terms of value. I have no idea what makes me different or useful in the world. Just go and see if you can have a good time and make people happy. And so I spent the whole time there sharing my story of leaving the breakdown and then searching that was just telling them what I was doing and I made so many friends and people were telling me Ellie you're such a good storyteller or you know you can make anybody feel happy and I was kind of like writing down when I got back to my hotel room like okay so and so said this is what makes me different or this is what makes me special or I made this person feel good because of this today and so I say like when I and I ended up having the after party for a fest at my house so like a hundred people come round. My housemate was like, bring the cool people from AFES back. And I was like, yeah, okay. And then like two days in, I messaged him and I was like, can I really? Because I'm making a lot of really good friends. And I did like, if there was like an official after party for AFES, I had it at my house, which was wild. Cause I was like a fucking, I just went there like, I hope I make some friends. <laughs> um, but I say like, I went to the, I, I came back from the retreat whole, but pretty empty. And then I came back from AFES full of love. And I still didn't know the direction for my life or my business, but I knew that my existence mattered. I was like, if I can make people smile and bring, and I can be this beacon of light, then I should keep doing it. And um, I went to another, there was like five after parties and they all kind of tapered down in intensity. Mine was pretty wild. And so I went went to one in Uluwatu and it was very chill. There was like guitars and fire and it was beautiful and we sang and I was like, wow, like this is a really beautiful space. And um, at my party, I'd met loads of women that lived in Bali and I was like, hey guys, we should get together often. You know, you guys are cool. You like have businesses. This will be fun. Why don't we have like, you know, a little get together at my house every week or something. You know, just, just us women. We can do some yoga and chill or whatever. And then going to this event, this little party in Uluwatu, I was like, this is what my women's get togethers need to be. They need to be a place to like cultivate this sweet, soft, innocent, warm energy. And I'm a column goddess circles. <laughs> and I, I'd made these friends with these beautiful women at AFES who rented this penthouse down in Uluwatu. And I came back from this party and I was sat there looking over the beautiful break there, just going like, my life is a dream right now. You know, I went just four weeks ago, I was at rock bottom and now I'm sitting in a fucking penthouse drawing a program up for an evening I'm going to host which is all about connecting women. And I was like, wow, okay, life can be so different tomorrow from what you ever thought possible. And I, I sat there and I cried and I was like, these circles are going to be my gift, like my way that I can just bring more love. That's all they need to be. And that was like where the alchemy of she was born was just wanting to keep these women together and just use my energy to do that you know to because no one was doing it no one was making the things that I wanted I was like where can we go do blah 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 and they were like oh no that doesn't exist I was like cool I'll do it <laughs> like that'll be that'll be the thing and th those circles ended up being really healing for me yeah and it was weird that the first one I held 
I got a call from a girl I used to go to school with in Zambia and she was like, hey, I'm in Bali. Like, I'm actually like in Seminyak, which is like 20 minutes away from your house. What are you doing? And I was like, I'm about to host my first women's circle. Do you want to come? She was like, yeah. <laughs> so weird. So I had this chick that I haven't seen in 15 years come around and it's like this magical night unfolded. And um, the journey kind of, it started there really, but that was like a pivotal moment for me where I went love and connection is this and truth is the center of everything and everything's possible like that that moment when I sat I was looking around I was playing this music at the end of the circle there was eight of them and I was like these women are here in my house they're here because I have something for them to experience that adds value to their life and I kind of feel like I feel it now that same energy of just like okay like this is something that you can do like this, this matters. These women are here and they're fe- like the smiles on their faces, closing their eyes in meditation. I was like, what is this drug? I didn't know. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting the Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. I mean, it's free. It's healthy. (laughs) This love drug. I must get more of this. So yeah. I would love to hear more about that. I mean, first of all, I think what's amazingly inspiring is what you mentioned about how quickly that sort of roller coaster of life can turn yeah. up from rock bottom if you take certain initiatives yeah. and do certain things with certain intentions. Yeah. And then you're able to so so four weeks is that's amazing that you from where you were to where you went. But I would love to hear a little bit more about then from there, sort of your ongoing journey and the role of those women's circles. And then for you personally, but then also I'd love to hear about sort of the evolution of the alchemy of she and what that looks like now and how you're supporting other women in their journeys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Originally, I just saw, because I wanted to start this retreat center, right? Like it was all about like the healing for these people. And then I was like, oh, it's going to require a lot of capital investment. And like, I don't really know how to do that. And I was like, women's circle, sweet. That'll be, that's easy. I know how to do that. And I can do them at my house. I just got some flowers and some candles, got some sage. (laughs) And like, I just made this shit up as I went along. And like, it's so fitted with what little Ella liked to do. And, And what ended up being funny is where they got to. Because every week... Like at the end of the first one, they were like, that was amazing. Can we do it next week? And I was like, sure. Like fucking doing nothing else. So yeah, come on over. And then there was like 10 of them at the next one. And then every week there was people coming and there was repeat people coming. And then there was people referring people. So I started a Facebook group and I was like, 
y'all should fucking get in touch on here. And then I like that. Like, I haven't. They've been on hold in inverted commas for a while now, but I have like 150 women in there. And and I didn't try to do that. You know, I just was hosting these events and and hoped that people got got something out of them. I'd say maybe let's go. I don't the time's irrelevant, but let's go with like 20 circles in. One of my beautiful clients has a wedding villa here in Bali and she let me host one of the circles there. And it's like this jungle villa in the middle of Tabanan, which is just like above the main road here. And, and it's like over a, a river and it's like jungle city. And uh, I got someone to come down and film it. And it's some of the pictures that you would have seen is like that that day. And uh, I led like the whole circle went for four hours and I led this dance portion of it where we're like naked and screaming and the women were having such a good time and uh at the end of that I was sat next to my client and she was in her underwear (laughs) we were swaying and she was holding my hand and we were done and we'd been singing I kind of had an idea of how that day was going to roll but I really did just make most of that up as we went along I put a playlist together and all the rest of it but she looked at me and she smiled and she said, because when I had my breakdown and I went to see her, she was like, you know, what do you like to do? And I was like, dancing, right? But I'm never going to be able to use that. That's not something that I can add value to the world with. And she was like, all right, we'll just park that for now. And so when we're at the circle and she's been like leaping around in her fucking underwear because I asked her to, she's like sitting there and there were 16 women there and they all, you know, in various forms of clothing and she just looked over me and you said you wouldn't be dancing and I was just like oh my god like fuck like yeah this is everything can be a gift if you love it it there's something in it right for you to share and that whole experience of of leading those spaces every time I finished a circle people would be like so do you do this full time do you have like a program or like something that we can like how do we more how do we do more? And I'm like, no, no, no. Like I have a business. <laughs> like, this is just, I do this for fun. <laughs> Come and hang out. But I got a lot of push and a lot of ask from people to do it, right? To, to pursue it more full time. And I wanted to. And then in January, I went to a women's retreat. This woman that I'd met at A-Fest held it. And um, I just changed as a woman at that retreat. It was It was insane. And I came back and I was like, I'm going to host my own retreats. And I was really focused on the healing side of things. But actually, I decided to host it before I went. I went on this retreat. And then I realized at that retreat, because of some of the stuff that went down there, some of the women there were processing really intense trauma and a lot of stuff that honestly felt way beyond my capabilities. And I looked at my reach and my influence and my impact. And I decided that I wasn't going to pursue like the coaching healing space full time. It didn't feel authentic for me when I hadn't worked through all of my shit. I was like, it's cool for me to host women's circles and to lead dance and all the rest of it. But, you know, I noticed my first circle back from that retreat was so powerful. I had a chick like sobbing in my arms and she was about to start like releasing some stuff. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, like, and I'm not going to do this without truth at the core of where I'm at. So I can only take women so far, you know, responsibly without like knowing what I'm doing. I want to heal these women 
for real. I don't just want to be, this isn't about me being able to come and I'll heal you. You know, I really want these women to be happy. So I was recommending everyone to my coach, obviously, (laughs) but just kind of holding these smaller circles. And actually, when I got back from the retreat, I decided to cancel my retreat. And I took that opportunity to focus on my business because I realized that I had this really sort of unresolved part of my professional world that I kind of looked at it and I went, okay, as a woman just turned 30, I don't really have a very sustainable way to support myself. And I think that that's a very common problem, right? For women that are 30, especially a lot of the ones that come out here to Bali, they have like a kind of business and they can kind of make money, but they don't really know what they're doing. And it's very tied to their self-worth. You know, it's like, and a lot of them want to be coaches because they're like, oh, well, this will make me some money and I can help people along the way. And they're massive failures. And it's so sad for me to see. (laughs) So you're like nodding the most that I've ever seen anyone nod right now. It's a big nod from Matt. But it's true, right? Like every fucking Tom Dick and Harry out here is a coach and no, nothing against them. I think it's great, but it doesn't end up being a business like for most people that can really work for them. I really care about women being independent in a really healthy way. And I think that a lot of that comes from being able to create a business that's sustainable. So instead of trying to heal other women through the stuff that I was pursuing, I'm still very interested in all of that. But I decided that I was going to lead by example and create a sustainable life for myself through business. And then what I'm doing now, like I've taken a bit of a break from, you know, the crazy naked dancing and all of that sort of stuff. I still host circles and I still hold space for a lot of my girlfriends and I will always be that person. But I'm really trying to do a lot more work on myself so that I have more to teach. I'm not just holding space. I can actually provide, you know, strategic advice on how to create this type of thing in your life. And you know, Erin and I talk a lot about empowering women in business. And I think that's more of where the alchemy of she will end up moving towards actually is going to be helping to empower women to empower them, like take agency over their life by creating businesses that matter to them. And they'll ne- definitely be naked dancing and, and, and witchy things are, are along the way as well. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, let's talk a little bit about Made of Magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe just talk about, you can talk about the evolution of it if you just from, you know, inception to, you know, all the different ups and downs that you've kind of gone through in that entrepreneurial journey. I mean, I'd love to hear sort of the the historical story behind it, but also to learn about the business and, you know, how you decided to go in that direction. And then ultimately, you know, sort of the niche that you carved out for yourself as well. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of all weaving together. And it's no surprise that Made of Magic focuses on retreat marketing because of where I got to in my life. But initially, I started the business three years ago. Um, I hired a business coach, coach, actually, after Tony Robbins. Tony was like, go and find someone who knows how to do what you want to do and either pay them or copy them. So I found someone based in Bali, actually, and she teaches women how to repurpose their professional skills and and build a location independent business. So I was like, yes, I will pay you $4,000 to do the thing. So I did. And uh, within four weeks, I had my first client and I was like, sweet, this is going to be doable for me. But I was 
going through a lot personally as well. And I had a full-time job and I was working like 16 hour days. And so I was working with coaches initially, you know, I wanted to do like for purpose stuff. I'd worked in corporate for so long. I'd had really good jobs, but I didn't want to work with dickhead clients. So I was just like, no. So there had to be like mission oriented sort of aligned clients. And I kind of breezed through her curriculum and like did the thing on paper and I got to Bali, right? Like I got to Bali, but I didn't have a business that was sustainable. I was like in the same trap I just talked about that a lot of the women are, you know, and or people are. It's like they don't have a systemized business. They don't have a vision for where they want to go. And, and really, I think a lot of, for me, entrepreneurship wasn't something that was really designed for success. It was like this thing that I might try and maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll be good at. But I don't think I'd really planned for success. I think I'd planned for it to always be hard. And I definitely hadn't grasped the idea that I was going to be successful one day and then could scale it. So it was a bit of a mess. And then my relationship fell apart. And then I left the country. So my business was like, just barely hanging on, you know, by a thread. And then after the breakdown, I put it all on hold. I picked it back up again um, in November last year. I took on a business partner because I realized that my strengths did not lie in execution. (laughs) And actually, if I was given anything to do, I would fuck it up. (laughs) So I partnered with someone that I thought would be able to do all of that for me. So I was like, sweet, I get to focus on sales and strategy. So I went and got us three new clients in two weeks. I was like a sales machine at that point. So my housemate, the one with the surfboard that came and, you know, stopped me from throwing myself in the ocean, he had a digital marketing agency too. And he had seen me do like long proposals for people and like just stupid shit that I didn't need to be doing. And he just helped me. He gave me like resources, SOPs, bits and pieces of tools. And I was using them and they were working. And he was the one that was like, maybe you should partner, you know, hire someone that can help you do the execution. So I partnered with someone and ended up being poor choice, but Made of Magic was born then when I partnered with him. And at AFES, the last night of the conference, the theme of the party was you are made of magic. And that was a pivotal moment in my life. And I remember when I was thinking about this business, I was like, well, I want it to be called Made of Magic because I'm a fucking witch. (laughs) And if I'm going to do this, it's going to be my fucking way and it's going to be fun. (laughs) So the business was actually born in a few hours and we had a logo and, you know, everything just came together. It was this very organic, quick thing that just felt right to do. And so the clients that were on the table were very mismatched. And so I got rid of a few and then took on a yoga teacher training retreat and a retreat here in Bali. But basically, I got an opportunity to test a campaign on a men's retreat in South America. And it's actually a plant medicine retreat. And this guy kind of took a bit of a a gamble working with me because I didn't have this funnel, wasn't proven yet. But I decided to understand that if I wanted to grow this business, it needed to be a system that I could scale. And so I, I needed to stop doing bespoke projects for people. You know, yes, I'll build your website. Yes, I'll run this campaign. Yes, I'll do everything. I need to decide 
how can my business best add value to this market? And then how can we replicate that over and over again? And I knew that it started with getting amazing results for clients. That had to be the thing. And so I decided to, you know, whilst my relationship with my business was kind of my business partner was failing over here, I decided to focus on this one campaign. And I was like, if I can smash this and get results for this guy, maybe this is something that I could do again. And I'd been in the retreat space so much that I'd seen all these beautiful, amazing healers and just wonderful facilitators who are terrible at business and terrible at marketing (laughs) because it's not their strength, right? It's not their unique ability. And they're great people. And I started to look at this industry and I was like, no one's fucking helping them. (laughs) No one, they're all being burned by marketers and it's not the marketers fault. You know, they don't know what they're doing. It's not the healers fault because they're just trying to hire the professional, but there seemed to be this 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 problem that needed solving. Um, And I, one of my closest friends who was kind of my mentor, I said to her, I was like, if I could crack this, like, would you, like, would this be useful to you? If I could build a system, a marketing system that would sell your retreat for you, you know, would this work? And, and I'd gotten hold of like Sam Ovens' stuff and like dot-com secrets. And I was really, Scott, my, my business mentor had kind of honestly like helped me unlearn everything I'd learned about marketing for the last eight years and teach me everything that actually matters. I read story brand, this is marketing, dot-com secrets, expert secrets. And probably uh, I did some copywriting courses. I've always been a good copywriter, but like direct response copy. And like, I really just learned that the key elements of funnels that would sell, like what is the 20% of the whole marketing suite that actually fucking moves the needle and went hell for leather on this campaign. And just the results astounded me. And I was like, oh shit, I think I'm onto something. <laughs> and I looked it up and the wellness tourism industry, the re- you know, which the retreat space is part of, is worth over half a trillion dollars. And I, I'm not doing this for the money, but I'm like, I'm all about seeing what the opportunity is. And I was like, holy shit, this could be something. And so I... Like I was part of Scott's group program. He'd kind of swung me in as a bit of a guinea pig. And now I'm like his, I like help out. I like co-facilitate with him. And uh, he had showed me how to generate leads for my own business. So I made some pitch videos and I went out and found some retreats that were doing cool shit. And I sent them some videos and I was like, hey, you're running Facebook ads and they're fucking terrible. So I think I can do a better job hop on a call with me and we'll take it from there. And I had like a hundred percent conversion rate on all the videos that I sent. And I, I went from no business partner saying goodbye to all of the money that I had invested and time that I had invested in that to having a couple of clients sort of almost overnight. But the challenge, and this is so important because it's like, I now, we're now turning over 20K a month, which like for three years in business, isn't that great. But the journey that I've been on to get to where I am now is like, I'm pretty sure that if you took it all away from me tomorrow, I could do it again. And I think that's what matters the most is like that I know how to build the system now, you know, to be able to do it. And I did all of this while I lost my dad. So this just makes it all so much sweeter, like just enjoying the journey that I like what I have now. So I got this one client up and running, we finished his campaign. And I'd say I had no money. I had nothing left in my bank account. I'd spent the whole year 
you know, I spent five grand on A-Fest for God's sakes. Like I'd spent the whole year investing in myself and wasted a lot of money on courses and coaches and, and shit along the way as well. I spent a lot of really good money too, but I had nothing really. And I needed these clients to pay for my rent, but also to pay for my ticket home to say goodbye to my dad. And that's kind of where I was at was this pivotal moment in my life where I had to go all in on my business because I needed to do this thing. I needed to go home and say, say goodbye to my dad. And it was the most stressful time. Like my housemate, you know, had to cover my rent for a couple of days while I waited for a client to pay an invoice. And I remember I was actually in Amsterdam signing up one of my clients because I was in the UK saying goodbye to my dad. And he died on the Saturday and I signed the biggest contract of my agencies, like of my, of my personal career on the Monday. And it was so bittersweet, you know, and, and the what is ironic is the same thing had happened three years before the day I opened my electric bike shop was the day that my dad was diagnosed with cancer, the same fucking day. And it was, it's like this emotional whiplash, you know, of like, yes, oh my God, this is amazing. And then holy shit, this massive thing has happened in my life. And I think the resilience and, and also the, just the detaching from the outcome, you know, I learned so much about that during that because I just had to be present. I just, I was like one thing at a time, <laughs> just like, okay, today we wake up. Okay. Dad's not here anymore. Okay. What's next? you know, okay, I have to go sign the contract. Like what happens if the contract doesn't come through? We're kind of fucked. So we're going to have to go back to the drawing board tomorrow and like do another thing. It was like, everything was so hanging in the balance at that stage, but it all fucking played out. <laughs> it wasn't easy, but it, it did. It all, it all played out. And my, that client is, they're wonderful people. You know, they, they were so beautiful and supportive of my journey, you know, and actually they're a psychedelic retreat center. And, you know, I went and had a psychedelic experience at their retreat center, which was huge for me processing my grief. And it was crazy. And after that, it just grew. It happened because I really just understood how to ask for help. And I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Like, I don't have a clue what I'm doing, you know, and, and I think staying humble and going, I don't know what I'm doing allows me to make sure that I leverage the people around me that do or that are doing things better than me or, or you know, having more success and helping me. And, you know, you talked about Aaron and Arthur and some of the people that have been on this podcast, those, they've been critical for me. You know, I was like, I was like, Aaron, you're really successful in your business. How do you structure your day? And I'm like, cool, I'm going to do that for this long. And I, I, I've tried what works for other people. Some of it works for me, some of it doesn't. But I'm at a stage with the business now where I feel so confident in what we've got to offer product-wise and, and results-wise for our clients that I'm ready to grow it now. Let's talk specifically about what that is, what your service offering is, and how you've clearly defined your niche. Because I think that is one of the most strategically important things mm. that you have done. Because as many life coaches as there are in Bali, there's as many digital marketers mm -hmm. in Bali. Oh, right? yeah, for sure. I mean, at least as many, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I mean, maybe more. <laughs> maybe more. And so, what most people do mm -hmm. is they say, I'm a digital marketer. Yeah. Or, I'm a digital marketing agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can do digital marketing for anybody yeah. of any kind, you know, this kind of thing. 
And you have really refined a narrow niche, which dovetails both with your passion and your expertise and allows you to position yourself as a tippy top authority in that particular niche, which of course makes everyone in that niche want to work with you (laughs) as opposed to a rando digital marketer that's also working with 82 other niches. And a pizza joint. (laughs) Um, Et cetera. And so I think that's brilliant. I think it's super strategic. I think it's really important. And I would love for you just to talk a little bit about now, what is the refined sort of offering? Who are you working with and what are you doing for them? So it's interesting because the same advice that I took to position my business is the advice I give my clients. And I really think that, especially in the service industry, that niching is everything. Like, that's the strategy. Like, my business, like you said, I don't really do any lead generation now. People come knocking at my door and I'm actually building a group program so that I can service everybody because I can't scale quick enough to take on everybody and I want to offer them something else. And and actual module one is about how to define your niche (laughs) because the decision was easy for me because like you said, it aligned with my passion and it was such a massively underserviced market. You know, there's all these retreat owners out there. Most of them are coaches, by the way, right, that run retreats, but don't know how to make it profitable. And I'd gotten in there and just seen the problem, like the chaos that was there. And I also think that I understood the real problem, which was that these people had no lives. They were spending every waking moment on poor marketing strategies. So I knew that if I positioned my business as one that helps them get their life back, not just marketing. I'm not going to do your marketing. It's one that's going to help you. You know, my case study on my website is like my clients, like I'm dating again, you know, that's like his thing. But I I also, I knew as well that like I had to make sure that my business looked like it knew what it was doing, right? Like I, and I use, so when, when I get on sales calls with people, I use my business as an example. So I, so they say to me, right, okay, I run men's retreats. I'm going to teach them, a, it's a holistic approach. You know, we cover everything from relationships to finance, to health, to this, to that. And I'm like, cool. And who's it for? And they're like, men between 30 to 45 who, you know, want to live a better life. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not going to work. That's everybody. That's everybody. So, and I go, okay, so I'll give you an example. How many digital marketing agencies have you thought about working with? And they go, oh, like lots or whatever. I get approached by this man. Okay, why have you decided to work with me? Or why are you on this call with me today? Because I specialize in retreat marketing. I know this industry and this market inside out. I know exactly what problems you're solving. And you're already sold on working with me because you've read the copy on my website. It's talking directly to you. So do you understand? They're like, oh, I get it. I understand that if I'm really pointed and really specific with my messaging, I can attract the right type of person. And then I explain to them that, your marketing dollar goes so much further. So I explain the difference between trying to find, you know, that generic broad man on Facebook versus a 35-year-old senior tech executive in Silicon Valley who's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu hobbyist who has an addiction to porn and wants to find a meaningful relationship in his life. Like those are two very different avatars. Actually, the one that I described first is what my client came to me with. And what I just described next is what we're going to market with. And and it's very easy for me to find the second avatar on Facebook. And it's going to be really fucking cheap because I know exactly who I'm trying to find. Um, And so a lot of what I do with my clients is I choose to work with people that are good at what they do. And then I will help them to 
reposition their offering. I don't need to touch the content of what they teach because it all provides the same outcome. It's just about making sure that it's dressed up in a way that speaks to the right people. They're ultimately best placed to serve. It usually involves digging into their story and finding out what it is specifically about them that makes them the right person to serve that person. And that's my favorite part of my business. Like, I'm like, tell me your fucking life story. (laughs) And then I'm like, right, this is what we're going to do. And they're like, oh my God, (laughs) it's gold. I'm like, yeah, because you need, you know, you need that reflection and and they, they don't, they just don't understand how to how what what makes them special and how they can position themselves. So I do that with them and I go, okay, so now your retreat does this. Like your retreat now helps divorcee tradies. And they're like, what? But they get it, right? They're like, all right, <laughs> we'll do it. And then I build a lead generation system around that, which leverages the power of storytelling and direct response marketing and like digital marketing best practices across, you know, paid media. That's what we use specifically. And I build them a system that will generate them steady leads to fill their events. Yeah, that's what, and that's what we do. <laughs> and the other thing that you've done is you've selected high ticket mm-hmm. events specifically. You're not taking on clients that are selling $49 seats for some thing, yeah. which I think is also very strategic on your part as a business. Yeah, I chose to learn about and test a specific strategy, which was around lead generation for high ticket. And I was doing that because of the opportunity I saw in the retreat space. Most retreats that are like five to seven days charge over $3,000. And if they don't, when I start with them, they do when they become a client because they don't, if you can provide the value, you can charge and it, you know whatever you want. And if you can say, I'll change your life, look what I did for Susie and Gareth over here, then you know you can you can do the same thing. The other thing I think is that's important about how we're different from other agencies is when people get on the phone with me, like the truth thing that I talked about with like my personal life, that needs to be true for my business too. And when someone signs up to work with us, part of the onboarding process is we actually run through every single metric that's relevant to the funnel. So there's no question mark. There's no guesses in their mind as to what their ad spend is going to need to be to generate a result, what you know the cost per lead is going to be our click-through rate is is what we're aiming for it to be. So they start and they go, oh, I understand everything that's going to work through here. And I go, if you can convert 40% of your sales calls, this is how much it's going to cost you to acquire a customer. If you can convert 50%, it looks like this. And so everything kind of works backwards from that that price point of how much revenue they're going to make from their retreat. So I know it sounds crazy, but that doesn't happen a lot in the digital marketing space. You know, I've helped people fire agencies because I'm like, what targets are you working towards? And they're like, oh, we don't have any. I'm like, what do you mean? So I specifically went, the ROI on these types of campaigns looks good when people charge over $3,000 and they run more than three retreats a year. So that's my criteria for us working together. You have to meet those things. Otherwise, my product doesn't work great for you. And if my product doesn't work great for you, I'm not going to build another one to try and fix it because, and I get people, you know, to the $49 point, I get a lot of people being like, I have this thing over here. It's kind of like what you do. Can you help? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I I love you. And I think what you've got is great, but I can't deviate from my standard model because that's not how I'm going to scale my business. But it's why my, uh, the business partner and I are building this group program because I want to teach everything that I know about digital marketing and in the context of retreats, especially with what I know about 
retreats to people who might not run three retreats a year or might not want to invest in paid marketing yet. They need just need help building their offer, you know, building their finding their niche or understanding how to position their their market. And I, I see that that's where the real scale is for us as a business as well. That's awesome. I also want to ask you about, you know, as you've evolved and built the business and had your personal evolution going on at the same time, I want to ask you about your productivity habits, <laughs> because when you started, when you started your story and you started describing your lifestyle, when you first got to Bali and the results of that um, productivity, what productivity, what? <laughs> and then I would love to just hear now, because you mentioned that you did talk with Aaron and yes. Arthur, who listeners of the Maverick show know what their productivity habits are because I went into it deep with both of them. But you mentioned, I think importantly, that, you know, you learn some stuff from them, but not exactly 100% yeah. of stuff that works for them necessarily works for you. So it's an individualized process as it is for all of us. But to take your business to the level that you did now, mm -hmm. you obviously need to be rocking some serious productivity habits that are working well for you. So I would love to hear your, you know, morning routines or evening routines, day structure, productivity habits, how do you do what you do? Mm -hmm. So yeah, discipline has been something that I really struggled to associate with and always thought I had a lack of for a really long time. And if you were like, what is the one thing that you have done to do what you've done in your business? I would say it's focus. Everything has come down to focus one fucking thing at a time. Like I was the queen of scatterbrain. Like my, I'd wake up and I'd be like doing four things at once. And it was only when I started to introduce, yeah, a lot of structure. And, you know, I kind of, I shed this masculine mask to make way for this feminine you know, goddess to be born in my personal life. And then, but she can't run my business. Like she wants to like write for four hours. And I'm like, that's cool girl, but you got a deadline. <laughs> like, so we need to create a nice container for her to be able to do whatever it is that she wants. And it has been, I think like focus and experimentation have been the things because what works for me isn't going to work for, you know, what works for other people isn't always going to work for me. And other things that I've learned as well as like, you know, I've really understood like the power, like my menstrual cycle. I know that like that sound, might sound really like abstract for people, but where I am in my cycle really impacts my productivity. And so now I like, I'm even aware of that and how I can, I was just talking to, you know, my friend the other day about actually leveraging that knowledge more now. I had a productivity system when I opened the bike store and I saw that it worked really well. I used to use the Best Self Journal which is very goal oriented. And we opened the store within six weeks. So it worked and I knew the power of routines and I'd learned through Ferris and, you know, various other people, how important those things were. And that structure had kept me really solid. So I kind of had like an understanding that it could work, but, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. My, my lifestyle was not conducive to output. It was conducive to chaos and constant states of up and down. So, I, Scott really, when I joined that program, he gave me like a digital productivity thing. And it didn't, it didn't work for me entirely because it was digital. I need to write stuff down, but it kind of gave me, I was like, oh, okay. So this guy achieves this. Yes, he's smart. 
and he has a good strategy, but really he's just getting shit done. <laughs> so what's he doing? And like, give it a go. And it was like painstaking, you know, I'm like timing what I'm doing. And like, I'm a very creative person and I'm like, not loving that. But I'm like, Ella, w- like, no, we sit down and do it. Do the thing. Just do it. And what's interesting, I think, about discipline, and people talk about this all the time, is it really is like the the muscle, right? Like the more you flex it, the stronger it gets and the, the easier it is for me to exercise discipline. And like I've learned so much from Arthur, you know, but but it's funny because he's taught me so much. The amount that I'm able to implement at a time is really small. And it's like try something, just one thing, see if it works, mix it up if it doesn't. And I think that I have a have Arthur's productivity planner that I use religiously. I couldn't dream of doing anything without it. I'm adding my own layers on top of that now to be, you know, to help with the goal orientation through a friend of mine that's sort of nailing that space. My morning routine is all around getting out of my head and my body. So I do breath work, meditation, and I dance in my room naked <laughs> with candles and like the whole feminine thing. I like just create this space of groundedness in me. And I, I try and do that every, every day. Can you give any more details in terms of what time you're getting up? Yeah. Like what types of, I mean, any details about the breath work that you're actually doing the type of meditation that you do that, I mean, are you putting, what kind of music are you putting on when you're dancing and that kind of stuff? So I've mixed it up between like sticking my headphones on and dancing as soon as I get up to like after meditation. It seems after meditation works nicely for me. So yeah, I do a couple of light stretches. Uh, the first thing I do, I just drink a, a massive ton of water. It's like the first thing I do when I get up, then a couple of stretches and then I'll sit down. I was doing some breath work that um, a friend of mine who's kind of experimenting as a meditation coach instructed me and it was just single nostril breathing in like a triangle format followed by a box breath, you know, four breaths in four hold four breaths out four hold and that was just to help me with a single point of focus because that is the biggest challenge for me is is focus and then there was about three minutes I was using insight timer to with bells to track the different progressions through that and then three minutes of gratitude meditation at the end I love gratitude meditation I love feeling full of love so something's just dawned on me actually that I haven't mentioned. (laughs) Something that's been really pivotal for me, really just a massive part of my journey has actually been plant medicine this year. So I've sat at three ayahuasca ceremonies. And the reason that came to my mind there is that gratitude meditation brings me to that state of love and oneness that I feel, that I feel very grounded in those experiences that I've had this year. So whenever I do meditation or whenever I'm sitting with myself, I'm looking for that level of connectedness that I feel to the greater world around me and myself and to that sort of sense of that sense of peace. So more recently, I've been doing Wim Hof breathing, which has been a bit of a trip, but I couldn't recommend it highly enough. It's like some, it's crazy. Like who who knew breathing could feel that good? And I've experimented with lots of, you know, breath work and cold immersion and things like that over the last year. And it's been really, it's been really powerful. So, so my morning, so the meditation or the breath work, will then get me into my body. And when I'm in my body, I put my music on. And I need variety in my life for me to be happy. So I create, I'm trying to create structure and then opportunities for variety. So what I listen to is completely up to me on the day. Like I listened to Tom Jones' sex bomb yesterday morning. (laughs) 
<laughs> and some, and again, depending on where I am in my cycle or what's happening in my life, sometimes I need to release energy. So I'll put on like one of my like more tribal, like crazy goddess circle music and I'll shake. And like, if no one's home, I'll scream just to get me, you know, to have that energy move through my body. And I try to dance to a point where I can work up a little bit of a sweat. So I'm not like going crazy, but my blood is pumping and I I feel very kind of present. And I try to do something that gets me in some sort of feminine flow where I can move my hips and my my body. And I do that and then I, I actually start my day. So I'll be like dancing around the room and then maybe like one song, maybe two, and then I'll go brush my teeth. And I've still got my headphones on and I'm still listening to music, but I've just sort of started my, my morning and then I'll go downstairs and... Um, put my coffee on and I have my shower and then the headphones will come off whenever I feel like it at some point and I'll, uh, I'll start my day. And what does your work day look like? How do you structure your workflow? Just completely restructured it today, yesterday. So yeah. So talk about like things that aren't, aren't working for you. So I was doing eight till 12 every day, Monday to Friday, and then taking the afternoons off. But I have a client in Amsterdam and it was a fucking nightmare. And I was trying to just fit a square peg into a round hole, you know, and I was like adopting like the errand work day because I wanted to surf and hang out with her. I just wasn't working. So I've restructured it. Also, I, I understand how much I get out of it, like a free flow day. And if it's just the weekends, it's not enough. Like a, a free flow work day too, where I can kind of be creative. And my weekends are off because my, my family here is off, you know, so I want to hang with them. But I want some free flow work day where I can just fuck around on my computer, do some writing, do some research. So what I'm trying now is I'm going to do a Monday to Wednesday, like a front load the week. So that looks like me working. Probably, I get up pretty early, like 5.30. I don't set an alarm. So I have to wake up. I have to get enough sleep. I can't wake up until I'm done sleeping. And actually, I went back to bed for an hour this morning because I was tired. It's like sleep is so important. And so I'm going to do work. And I'm actually going to work till 8 p.m. Not consistently. I'm going to take like today. I went to the spa at 1130, went and had lunch with a friend, talked about business. And then I'm like back on this evening. And so I'm going to do that Monday to Wednesday. And then I can be online for them because I have a, a bit of a different arrangement with them. And then Thursday and Friday, I'm going to try and take off. So I might do like one or two hours of like work specifically, but it's not a required work day. So I will have four days, three days on, four days off. I don't know how it's going to roll, but it's a controlled experiment. I'm going to try it for a month. I've committed that and I'm going to see how it works. Awesome. I love it. All right, Ella. Well, in being respectful of your time, I want to move us into the final portion of this interview. Are you ready for the lightning round? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> the lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years you would most recommend that people check out? So aside from the four hour work week, because that's just like, if you don't, haven't read that, like get off this podcast and do that immediately. Right. I think the most recent one would have to be Story Brand, actually, by Donald Miller. That's been huge. It's a marketing book, but it, it's so relevant to the way that we communicate as humans through story. And in terms of actionable insights for anyone with a business, it's been huge. Okay. Because I like to make my own rules. Number two in the marketing space has been This Is Marketing by Seth Godin. 
that's been amazing just in terms of like understanding the wider context of what marketing is and how it really all just starts with a fucking good product. <laughs> so those are the th- those are the ones that have been have been pretty big for me in my business. Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you'd most recommend? I have been experimenting with fasting a lot recently. I've been doing three day, five day, 36 hour, whatever. And I use an app called Zero for that. And it's great. It's easy. It's motivational. It's informational. Um, and it has a little countdown. I can say I'm doing a 24 hour fast and I can hop in and check, uh, check on that. And I've also been using the app Blocker right? The one that's like, no fucking WhatsApp for you until you're done working. No Instagram, because I'm addicted. (laughs) Awesome. If you could have dinner with any person who's currently alive today that you've never met, just you and that person together for dinner and a three hour or so conversation, who would you choose and why? Mm -hmm. So it has to be Tony Robbins, because... I know that if I was sat with him for three hours, like people pay a million dollars for coaching with him. There's no way that he could sit there and not coach me. <laughs> so, so I feel like I need, everyone needs a bit of Tony coaching in their life. So, and I, I think that it would be really interesting to sit and just be with him for, for that amount of time. I just wonder what the fuck would happen. I feel like my life would be changed just by being next to molecules that had been next to him because he's amazing. <laughs> Yes, I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm part of the cult. (laughs) (laughs) If you could go back in time, knowing everything that you know now, and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Ella? I would ask her to have more love for herself and just more patience and compassion. Like, slow the fuck down smile more, you are going to experience like the world of joy is coming. (laughs) So just enjoy the ride, you know, like, like it's going to be okay. In fact, that's what I just, I just be like, it's going to be okay. That's all she needs to know. (laughs) So awesome. (laughs) What are your top three favorite travel destinations that you've ever been to that you would recommend people check out? So I love Amsterdam. Like love, love, love Amsterdam. It's so cool. For a city, it's awesome. Everything that's there that you want, plus all of the fun things that you can't get in other places. I love Barcelona too. I'm actually not a city person, which is funny that I'm recommending like two cities, but Maybe it's because I've like lived a lot by the beach now. So that's not like, it's not really a destination if I live there. So maybe my third one should be Bali because I live here and it's great. (laughs) Actually, no, it's not. Don't come to Bali. There's nothing good here. (laughs) Everyone stay away. (laughs) All right. Last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations, places that you've never been that are the highest on your list you'd most love to see? Um, I really want to spend some time in South America. So probably Peru. Um, I want to spend some time in the jungle with some shamans, um, experiencing some really raw plant medicine experiences. So that, that for sure. I'm really keen to travel around remote Indonesia more. I really want to do some boat 
travel and just be a bit more sort of off grid. So I'd like to, and that doesn't have to be just Indonesia. It could be like Malaysia, you know, the Philippines, like places like that. And then like a snow destination. So uh, I love snowboarding. So either Japan, which I nearly went to with Aaron and Arthur earlier this year, or I've done, like I've done uh, Whistler and stuff. I think either Japan or uh, like some of the European, like the French Alps. I've never been there to the to the snow, just somewhere where I can get some like powder time in. Awesome. Good picks. All right, Ella, I want you to let folks know how they can find you, how they can follow you on social media, learn more about the alchemy of she, learn more about Made of Magic and all the stuff that you're up to. So uh, madeofmagic.co is our website and you can book a call with me there. Um, but I'm all over the social medias like LinkedIn and Facebook. Alchemy of She has a Facebook page, but we also have a Facebook group as well that you can join. And I would I would just encourage if any, anyone's listened to this and they're like, oh shit, those are some of the things that I go through or like any of that's resonated, just reach out and join the group because I don't know what it's going to evolve into, but I know that I dip in and out of it with messages and like I just organized like a, uh, I asked some girls if they wanted to get together to talk about business, you know, just a little like online business circle type thing. So that's a really good space to just connect with women that are on a, a similar journey and just, yeah, social media, like Instagram and Facebook are a great place to, to connect with with me personally and just have a chat. All right. We're going to link all of that up, including your social media handles and your website and everything else in the show notes for this episode. So you can just go to themaverickshow.com and just click on the show notes for this episode and all of Ella's contact info will be right there in one place. Ella, you are amazing. <laughs> and I want to thank you for being here today. This was so thank awesome. Thank you. Thank you for you. listening to my long rambling stories. It's been really fun. Thank you. <laughs> You're awesome. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing.